0: Every two years, the International Prize in Statistics is given out to recognize an individual or team for major contributions to the field of statistics, particularly those that have practical applications or which led to breakthroughs in other disciplines. The winners chosen in a collaboration between the American Statistical Association, the Institute for the Mathematical Sciences, the International Biometric Society, the International Statistical Institute, and Royal Statistical Society, the 2021 honorary. is Nan Laird, and her award and career is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Professor Emeritus in Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today, as I mentioned, is Nan Laird. Laird is the Harvey V. Feinberg Professor of Biostatistics at Harvard University. During her more than 40 years on the faculty, she's developed many simple and practical statistical methods for pressing public health and medical problems. Her work on the EM algorithm with Art Dempster and Ron Rubin is among the top 100 most cited of all published articles in science. She's also developed popular and widely used methods for meta-analysis, longitudinal data, and statistical genetics. She's worked in several areas of application, including the quantification of adverse events in hospitals, childhood obesity and genetic studies in Alzheimer's, bipolar disorder, asthma and lung disease. And as I said, Laird was awarded the 2021 International Prize in Statistics for, quote, her work on powerful methods that have made possible the analysis of complex longitudinal studies, end quote. Nan, thank you so much for joining us today and congratulations on the award.
1: Thank you.
2: Nan, let me add my congratulations as well. It's, it's just delightful to see you recognized with this with this award. You know, I had mentioned to you previously that I remember seeing this idea of of longitudinal data and the way it had to be structured. And and there were all these seeming constraints on trying to do this with the traditional methods at the time that I thought, holy cow, no one will be able to do this. No data set will ever conform to it unless I made it up. So I'm I'm trying to I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about. What was, what was some of the motivation and inspiration for the work that you were doing in uh, longitudinal data methods? And perhaps you might want to start with just saying, what the heck is longitudinal data?
1: So, yeah, why don't I start with that? Um, so in a longitudinal study, we have a sample of individuals and we measure them repeatedly over time on the same variables. And so it's this concept of measuring people repeatedly that's important because it means that you can calculate change in the outcome that you're interested in over time. And such studies are often used in uh, public health settings to look at how people change over time. How do children grow? How do the elderly decline? And what are some of the factors that you might be able to identify that influence growth or decline in people? And I'd like to mention in contrast uh, another sort of study that people often use, and that's the so-called cross-sectional study. And that's the one where, again, you have a sample of individuals, but you only measure on, on one occasion. And uh, you might be you might in that setting find a lot of interesting associations between certain exposures and outcomes, but You you can't necessarily conclude that if you uh, change a person's exposure from one thing to another, that that will induce a change in the outcome, because you haven't measured any changes at all. So this is thought to be one of the most important things. And another feature of the longitudinal study is if you think there are intervening variables that might influenced the association, you can hold them constant within a person. So that's another attractive feature of the longitudinal study. So you ask how I got interested in this. Well, let me just say one other thing that I think is relevant. I got my PhD in 1975. And just about the time that I got my PhD was a time that either a lot of longitudinal studies in epidemiology and public health, they were maturing, oh. and they had all these data on people that had been followed for a long period of time, and in many cases, they didn't really know what to do with it, <laughs> because as you said, John, the, the sort of statistical tools available at the time were for very tightly structured data, so I was uh, I went after I got my PhD. I went to Harvard School of Public Health, and shortly after I was there, I was joined by a colleague James Ware, who was recruited to the school to work on a study called the Harvard uh, Study of Air Pollution and Health. And this study actually was uh, initiated in seventy five, and. One of the initiators of this study confessed recently that it was initiated without consulting any statisticians <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> and, and their desire was to see if air pollution levels affected growth in children. They were interested not only in certain respiratory outcomes like wheeze and cough and respiratory illness, but also measures of lung function. And so they recruited children from six different cities which had varying levels of air pollution. So they chose six cities. I don't remember all the six. Two of them were chosen to have to be fairly dirty cities. Two were chosen to be pretty clean cities. And then there were two in the middle. And they recruited some 10,000 children through the schools to participate in this study and they had baseline measurements of all kinds of things and then they measured people repeatedly for up to six years uh, in annual visits to the school on intervening respiratory illness and uh, on, on lung function and other kind of pertinent variables. And then when Jim came which was probably around in the 1980s, they were getting ready to analyze these data. And as uh, John alluded to, really all the early work on repeated measures, which included measures that were taken over time under different circumstances, as well as ones where you really wanted to measure growth and change in an outcome. I believe those... Those statistical methods had arisen in the context of agricultural field trials where you could really control things yep. very carefully. So if you do an experiment, you put a great deal of effort into uh, controlling your variables and when you take the measurements and how many measurements and making sure everything is at the same age and taken under the same circumstance and that the treatment effect doesn't change over time. And and under those circumstances, you could get some nice results over how to analyze these data. But when you talk about these big epidemiological studies involving thousands of individuals over time, uh, even if you were set out to measure children of the exact same set of ages at the exact same times. Things happen. The schedule goes out, children drop out, children don't show up for school that day. So you get designs which can be very highly unbalanced. And even in the case where the longitudinal studies are prospective, and if you get studies that rely on drawing past histories out of clinical records, they can be highly unbalanced sorts of data. And although I hadn't worked in the area of longitudinal data or repeated measures, I had done some work on variance components. And uh, that was part of my thesis work in a paper that I wrote with Art Dempster and Don Rubin on the EM algorithm showed how you could put the concept of incomplete or missing data into this umbrella and provided a general framework for how to think about using maximum likelihood. So Jim and I worked on that approach um, in the context of longitudinal data analysis. And we developed what I thought at the time was, well, obvious, simple, straightforward approach It's gonna work pretty much for anybody who had collected data over time with the objective of studying how people grew and whether or not that growth was affected by various covariates, and then there might be particular exposures you wanted to look at. And that was an attractive feature of our work is that it could accommodate virtually any kind of design that you did. And I think another feature of our work that was very attractive was we used very ordinary regression models. So if, if you've only had a course in standard regression in a, your first statistics course, You've seen those betas and those x's and those y's, and, and you know how to interpret them. So we put our models into that framework and showed how you could use this very familiar type of framework to express hypotheses of interest, in even when the data were pretty complicated.
2: Well, it was brilliant. and th- Thank you for making it easier to teach this.
1: <laughs> thank you.
3: Nan, I have a question about your... Kind of support of applied work and practical work over time, and I was I was teaching in Michigan at a time when I knew theoretical work was much more valued over applied work. And I'm you were at Harvard, and I'm imagining yes. the same thing yes. is true. Did you face any pushback or any setbacks in your career for your interest in uh, ap- applying things to you know life problems that were practical?
1: Well, I uh, I'm I'm glad you asked that question because sometimes I get criticized for just the opposite thing, and <laughs> that uh, and this was particularly true in the setting of uh, some work I did on SAT scores. Was I was sort of accused of being more interested in the methods than in the results, uh-huh. and that was a bad thing. <laughs> but you know I guess I see myself as a person who was I was always motivated by trying to solve a problem and I was motivated by how problem a actually was very similar to problem b even though they might look quite different they were all the same but I have to say I don't think of myself as being a totally applied statistician because I never spent... I, I tended to be the colleague that the applied statistician consulted with. And I felt often I didn't get into the subject matter as much as I could have or should have or wanted to, but I think your question is quite relevant. people. Often feel that applied statistics is not as important. Mm. But for me, I never, I never would have succeeded in an institution without being motivated by applications. That's clear.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Harvard University's Nan Laird, the 2021 International Prize in Statistics awardee.
2: So to, to follow up on that, I'd, I'd like to, to have you talk a little bit about. Work that you had done associated with cabin air quality. I, I, I was picturing this, this trip that I took in the early 90s overseas, and I, I was sitting in the uh, non-smoking part of Coach, which was ahead of the smoking part of Coach and behind the smoking part of First Class. I I quickly realized that smoke did not stay in in seating sections, so, and I I certainly was not a happy guy about that. But I was delighted when when this was removed from from air travel. So, can you talk a little bit about getting involved in in this work, cabin air quality?
1: Well, yes, I have to say this is a, is one of the things that people often congratulate me the most on that has <laughs> had a real personal effect. So. Was asked to be on a committee of the National Academy of Sciences and it's usual for Congress when they think there's a debate about some health effect to set up a committee convene a panel of experts and they're going to study this so the background on the air cabin quality was you know in the early days of flying and I'm not sure I remember that far back airplanes used to take in fresh air and that way they kept everybody happy but fresh air is very expensive to use because you have to intake way up high where the air is very cold then you have to heat it up and it gets so hot that you have to then cool it down again so that you can use it in the cabin so it was a very expensive proposition and when fuel got to be to the ouch factor for the airlines, they, they redesigned the planes, basically. They redesigned the planes to work on uh, filtered or recirculated air. And of course, that recirculated air is filtered um, and probably filtered much better than it was back in those days. But it was filtered, but it didn't really do a good job of filtering out cigarette smoke. So um, that's when the airlines created these smoking sections, which were located near the galleys where the uh, airline stewards were. And so it, it really arose as a problem in occupational health because people in the, the airline stewards' union were very concerned about the level of exposure to um, environmental tobacco smoke. And, you know, so they had some really great advocates in the, um, the Union, and they also had the ear of many uh, senators, particularly senators from Hawaii, who had many long trips <laughs> on airplanes. So it was an ideal setup, and after intense lobbying for a number of years, they got Congress to set up this uh, panel to consider it. And so... You know, honestly, I don't know how I was on this panel. I was the only statistician. There was an epidemiologist, though, and so right from the beginning, it became clear what we had to do. There, there was awful lot of research into a lot of different things, and it was clear then that viruses could be transmitted through the ventilation system, and that had to be fixed. But one of the things that was really pretty clear was that they weren't going to get rid of environmental tobacco smoke, and I think we estimated that that being an airline steward was about equivalent to living with a a pack a day smoker uh, on a regular basis. So it was a non-trivial amount of smoking.
2: Was it? This was before the secondary smoke. All the work on secondary smoke was done.
1: It was just, I think, at the point where it was beginning. Okay. Now, there there weren't many studies that were specific to the air cabin and the steward's environment, okay. but there were these studies that were being done, uh, very interesting studies where they would take pack-a-day smokers and their spouses who were not smoking, and they would compare death rates in these couples, and there was a, a very small but statistically significant evidence uh, present in many of these studies suggesting that the side stream smoke was harmful to your health. And I remember we took public testimony, and the chairman of the epidemiology department at the School of Public Health, so I knew him pretty well, He gave testimony that said, "Mm, a risk factor of two is ridiculous. It doesn't mean a thing. It's way too low. You'd have to have a risk factor of five before we believe it. Um, And I just remembered that coming into my mind so clearly because now I've been recently been involved in genetic studies. You know, in the elevation, the risk risk factor is about 1.02, and people get excited about it. So, and the other little, for me, funny anecdotal thing about the uh, air cabin quality study was one of the most persuasive and best done studies on the effects of sidestream smoke was done by a man from Greece who later became the chair of the department at Harvard Epidemiology. So they were kind of contradicting each other's work there. Uh, but anyway, what was just abundantly clear was this problem wasn't going to go away unless we banned smoking on airlines. so we did. We recommended a ban on smoking in airplanes and I, I remember there were a number of people uh, on the committee who were initially reluctant well, they were they thought, well, if we ban smoking on airplanes, we're going to put Congress in a really bad position because there's the tobacco lobby and the smokers lobby and we just we we really shouldn't put them in such a bad position but some of us on the committee felt quite clearly that we just should ban it period which and we recommended that and a few months later they banned it And that that was that. I don't remember a lot of feedback from the tobacco industry. And uh, what I read lately was it, this, the anti-sentiment smoking was so strong that they just couldn't get traction. So uh, that was a satisfying result.
3: Can I ask you, um, this is a two-part question because John likes two-part questions. Um, when I ask them, not when you ask them. <laughs> how have <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, when you ask them? Yeah. How have you felt about the way journalists have covered your work? I mean, have you been? Have there been times when you felt annoyed? The second part is, what can journalists do better to cover the work of statisticians?
1: Okay, so well, let me say first of all, <laughs> journalists rarely cover my work, <laughs> and I'm <laughs> flattered if they do. <laughs> um, one thing I can think of was when I I was a consultant in a court case and this was a case involving Excedrin versus Tylenol and you know they're identical except Excedrin has caffeine in it otherwise they're identical and the you know these pharmaceutical companies they they really have to work for a living they did all these studies they're kind of like longitudinal studies but it's that and the same individual is given different compounds at different points in time. So I think the one study under question was these were people who suffered from chronic migraines. So whenever they had a migraine, they were randomized to one of of three treatments: Tylenol, etc., or placebo. And everything was a disguise, so they didn't know which one they were getting. But in this one particular instance, the investigators thought, well. They had to include placebo, because the FDA made you include placebo. And they thought, however, randomizing subjects in the context, if you didn't promise them that, well, maybe there's a chance that they'll get both of these compounds and that they're not going to get on placebo, was a lot better. So they conceived a design, which was called a balanced incomplete block design. And in this balanced incomplete block design, you only got two compounds. So, there were a bunch of people that got A and B, and there were a bunch of people that got A and placebo, and a bunch of people that got B and placebo. And um, how do you analyze that? Well, traditionally, from our uh, agricultural experiments, we were taught that you use the within-block information. So, in other words, to compare Exadrin and Tylenol, you just threw away all of those people that had placebo and you just looked at the difference between the within-person difference. And that's what had been done by the investigators for this study. And if you did that, Exadrin was looking better than Tylenol. So, the manufacturers of Tylenol said they can't be right because caffeine is not painkiller it's known as a stimulant but it's not a painkiller so how can that be right so I looked at the data and I said well wait this recommendation that you only use the within-person comparisons that's only good if the correlation between the measurements on people is kind of high or maybe low, I've forgotten which way it works now. But in this case, the correlation was sort of right at the cut point of where you recommend using one approach or the other. The other approach involves actually estimating a variance component. So it's a much more complicated thing. People don't like to do it, but we did this other approach. We combined the full data, the advantage for et cetera and went away. So we had to present this in court before a judge uh, and he was, I might add, a judge in his nineties. So you uh, did wonder what his ability was to to follow arguments. So it we did win the case for Tylenol, and it said it was written up in the Wall Street Journal uh, for obvious reasons. So the Wall Street Journal was interested in this finding, and they said, well. The defendants used an extremely sophisticated statistical argument to win the day. That, that was all that was said. But there was a lot of feedback from a study I did with Rebecca Der Simonian on uh, the SAT scores. There was, there was a lot of feedback in the press on that one.
2: Um, and that was, that was more of a, met, was that the meta-analytic one?
1: Yes, that was, meta-analysis was something that I was always interested in, I think, even as a grad student, because Fred Mosteller was quite interested in meta-analysis, and it was just beginning to be popular back in the early 70s when I was a student, and it was used mostly in sociology, where you'd have thousands of studies of psychotherapy versus uh, psychopharmacology, and who got better faster, and uh, so um, there was, uh, there was beginning to be some interest in that in medicine, although it wasn't much used at the time, but somehow Fred got a hold of a data set that had been collected by two professors at Harvard Medical School, and uh, the that's another story <laughs> into itself, which I won't go into. But they had collected data from about um, 20 studies that had been done on whether or not there was an effect of coaching on the SAT. And their particular interest in this was, um, you see, the SAT is a scholastic aptitude test. So aptitude doesn't mean what have you learned. It means what are your abilities to learn? So their reasoning was, if you have a test that's designed to measure aptitude, that if you then coach people, it should not have much of an influence on your aptitude. Okay. And uh, I thought this was really ripe for looking at, because if you look at the studies, it, it was kind of clever because for many studies they didn't have a control group, but the SAT publishes all these statistics on how people do, how the random person does, and if they take it at, one, at the end of their junior year and then three months later at the beginning of their senior year, how much do they gain? So they have all these statistics that you can use. Estimate what you would expect the ordinary kid to gain, and compare that to what people actually gained. And so there are a whole variety of different studies. There were very few studies that were randomized, where you randomize kids into a coached and uncoached group. But there were quite a few studies. And so when I looked at that, I said, mm, you know, it's just it's clear that you've got to build heterogeneous mix of studies and you know that's something that people worried about a lot at the time when doing a meta-analysis. They all said there was a school of thought that said, no, you can't combine heterogeneous studies. And there's another school of thought. Yes, you've got to combine everything you can find. And to me, it seemed quite natural to use the concept of variance components to indicate to what extent there was variation in the results. So. Um, I had a graduate student at the time who also worked with Fred, and she was familiar with the data. So we did an analysis that showed how you could use variance components to characterize the degree of variation in these studies. Um, and also, we showed that if you stratify the subject according to the study according to the design, it could make a big difference mm. in the results. And, and the conclusions were that, b- basically, if you looked at the more tightly controlled studies, there wasn't much indication that coaching could be helpful. Hmm. And I remember Fred Mosseller said to me, well, of course coaching is helpful. We wouldn't be here if coaching he- wasn't <laughs> helpful. Of course it is. He said, the question is, what's the evidence for coaching? Well, there wasn't any evidence very strong for coaching at the time. But the press, they they made hay out of it. It it, it was reported in many newspapers, and you know, the reports were small. And they all said, Meh, there's not much evidence mm-hmm. that coaching has a big effect. And of course, uh, Kaplan Testing Institute didn't really like it. I'm and, sure. But anyway, <laughs> it was somewhat controversial, but I don't recall that the press was negative about the study. I don't recall they were.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Nan, thank you so much for being here today. And again, congratulations on the honor. Thank you so much. It's my
1: pleasure.
2: Thanks, Nan. This was wonderful. What a delight to speak with you.
0: Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to MiamiOH.edu, or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.